Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It has begun. As the saying goes, elections have consequences. Democrats won control of the House last year, which means they now have oversight of the executive branch. This week's hearing involving former Trump lawyer and fixer Michael Cohen was their first significant flexing of that muscle. But it won't be the last. In fact, we should expect to see many of the names mentioned by Cohen in his testimony this week called before Congress. President's oldest son, Donald Trump Jr. Alan Weisselberg. Personal lawyer, Sherry Dillon. Matthew Calamari. White House Ethics Counsel, Stefan Pasentino. Also, Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff announced. On March 14th, we'll have an open interview with Felix Sater on Moscow Trump Tower. Even so, I think the immediate political implications from Wednesday's public hearing were very limited. At the beginning of the hearing, I said the two most important things to watch for were, one, does the testimony put pressure on Democrats to call for an impeachment investigation? And two, does it move public opinion of the president? By the end of Cohen's testimony, my answer to both questions was no. Despite a full court press from high-profile activist and billionaire Tom Steyer, It's time for us to put him in the rearview mirror. And growing calls from the grassroots, the Democratic leadership has been unified in cautioning against impeachment. Would that be an impeachable offense? Well, I'm not going into that. I'm not going into that. The reasoning essentially comes down to these two points. There aren't the votes in the Senate to convict Trump, and there is tremendous potential for this entire episode to backfire on Democrats in the way it did on Republicans back in 1998. I left the speakership after the 1998 election. Our results weren't as good as they should be. Thus far, Democratic leaders haven't had to push too hard to keep their members on the same page. At some point, they may have no choice but to relent to grassroots pressure from a riled up and frustrated base. I listened to the hearing. I didn't hear any Democrat on the Oversight Committee raise the issue of impeachment. Post-hearing, Chairman Elijah Cummings was asked by reporters if he thought the hearing showed that the president committed a crime while in office. Mr. Cohen is pleading to charges where he said he was directed to commit a crime by the president. I mean, I, I... Even so, he cautioned that it was important for him and others to wait for a final Mueller report. I want to proceed very cautiously. We also know that opinions of this president are pretty much set in concrete. Gallup polling data finds that the president has averaged a 39% job approval as president with his ratings ranging from a low of 35% to a high of 45%. That 10-point range in Trump's approval rating is the smallest for any president during his first two years in the Oval Office by a significant margin, says Gallup. We also know that opinions about this president's character have been pretty stable, and those opinions have been, well, pretty low. In other words, feelings about the president's personal character are baked in the cake. Even Republicans don't think he's particularly upstanding in the ethical department. A January NBC Wall Street Journal poll found that just 63% of Republicans see the president as honest and trustworthy. And only about half of Republicans think he has high personal and ethical standards. By the way, only 18% of independent voters see him as honest and trustworthy. Moreover, there was nothing that Cohen discussed in his testimony that voters hadn't already heard about Trump. He paid off a mistress with the help of the National Enquirer. He used his charity as his own slush fund. He lied about his ongoing negotiations about Trump Tower Moscow. Even Cohen's attacks on Trump's character. He is a racist. He is a con man. And he is a cheat. 
are things that have been said about Trump for the last three years. The way I see it, there's little to no chance this is going to change opinions of the president in a meaningful way. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. That was just my take. What about the people who are making these decisions on whether to push forward with an impeachment inquiry? What did they make of the hearing? I checked in with Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy of the 8th District of Illinois. He sits on both the House Committee on Oversight and Reform as well as the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. In other words, he was in the room for both the public and closed-door hearings with Michael Cohen this week. In Wednesday's hearing, Congressman Krishnamurthy spent a lot of time asking Michael Cohen about the non-disclosure agreements. Would you agree that in these types of NDAs, with this type of language, and later when Donald Trump sought to enforce them, that he intended to prevent people from coming forward with claims of wrongdoing? Yes. That's the first thing I asked him about when we spoke on Thursday afternoon. President Trump has extensively used non-disclosure agreements with employees, advisors, and even volunteers on the campaign. And when you read those non-disclosure agreements, they go beyond the language of what I would consider to be appropriate non-disclosure agreements that you would see in business contexts. Here, the language was extremely broad, it was vague, and in general, I thought that it was, you know, it, it was the type of language that appears to um, have a chilling effect on potential whistleblowers. And in fact, right now, there is a piece of class action litigation to invalidate these non-disclosure agreements that President Trump has required and attempted to enforce because, you know, they're being used to basically stifle claims of discrimination in the workplace or even illegal acts in the White House. You know, because of that, we are, I feel that yesterday's testimony is going to probably add to the lawsuit and basically help to invalidate these non-disclosure agreements. And then more witnesses will probably come forward and, uh, you know, tell their stories and maybe illuminate other parts of the various investigations going on. Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer of the Trump organization, his name was raised a lot during the hearings. Is this someone that you expect to call to testify? Actually, I, I heard that Chairman Cummings is planning to call him in. I think he would be a logical person to call in. I think uh, Don Jr., Donald Trump Jr., would also be someone else to call in. Yesterday, we heard testimony that Mr. Weisselberg has intimate knowledge of those financial statements that uh, Mr. Cohen brought to the hearing, um, as well as you know the various checks that were cut in connection with the hush money payments. Okay, And so um, I think that he would definitely be somebody that would have to be examined and obviously has personal knowledge of all these events. Do you have any sense about whether he can be called or whether the Mueller investigation or the Southern District of New York, the folks involved in those committees and that jurisdiction says to you, no, there's too much there. You can't ask him questions. I have not heard any kind of uh, restrictions in that regard. But Amy, I got to say something at this point. I'm not sure that we should give tremendous deference to the Department of Justice anymore in light of what Attorney General Barr and some of his colleagues have said about 
whether or not they're going to turn over mm. the results of these investigations to the American people. We can't have a situation where either the Mueller report concludes or the, the investigation in the Southern District of New York concludes. And um, we don't know what happened because they said that they're not indicting the president or they're not indicting others. That's just unacceptable because we know there was so much illegality that happened in the 2016 timeframe. That's why we in Congress have to probe for ourselves. We have to figure out what happened, what are the facts, and then we have to prevent this from happening again. What did you learn this week in the Oversight Committee, something about Michael Cohen, Donald Trump, that you did not know before? Well, there's there's some information that we learned with regard to the WikiLeaks line of investigation. It's now clear that there's a real disagreement, you could say, mildly speaking, between what Michael Cohen says Donald Trump knew about the WikiLeaks dumps before they ha- they happened right. um, and what Roger Stone and President Trump said. I'm not positive, but I think President Trump may have sub- submitted written testimony about this, but I'm not positive. Right. In any case, you know that's something that has to be investigated uh, because someone's not telling the truth here. Did anything happen this week in any of this testimony that has given you the impression that an impeachment proceeding needs to begin? I can't say that, Amy. I think that we have to conclude the investigation. As you know, there's so many um, investigations going on right now. But, you know, when I uh, worked in the prosecution area in uh, Illinois, you know, I, I really believe that you have to investigate before you prosecute. Similarly here, we have active investigations ongoing. We don't have the answers to all our questions. And so let's let's finish the investigation and then go from there. Do you feel like there will really be an end to this investigation, though? As you already noted, there are a lot of threads that opened up in the oversight hearings this week. You could go down a million different trails. This could be open for a lot longer. How, how will you know that you are done? Good question. I don't know the answer. I think that because the Attorney General and the DOJ have now thrown a lot of uncertainty into whether the American public is ever going to learn the contents or the details of the Mueller investigation, for instance, it's going to be incumbent on Congress to conduct these investigations in a much more transparent way so that everybody knows. You know, 50% of the country at this point thinks that there was something that that, that happened in 2016 that cast doubt on, you know, the results. And if we're ever going to get past this, and we have to get past this, we have to illuminate the facts. We have to bring out the truth. There's just no other way, Amy. And and you, uh, your level of concern that you will not see, that the public will not see a final Mueller report is how high? It was not high before. And now I'd say it's, you know, moderately so, because I believe that Mr. Barr is going to present a summary to Congress. I think he's obligated to present a summary of the of the findings or summary of the report, but he's not obligated to necessarily provide the underlying report in his opinion, nor is he obligated to present the evidence supporting what's in the report. So in light of that, and in light of the recent stories about the 
Trump administration trying to shape the investigations that are kind of closing in on the organization as well as the administration. I think that there will be a, a high incentive for them to, to keep it under wraps. When you are back in suburban Chicago talking to your constituents, how eager are they to engage in an impeachment discussion with you? At every town hall meeting that I've had, and I've had more than 20 to 25 town hall meetings uh, over the past two years, one of the first questions is about impeachment. Um, Of course, there are numerous other questions, but there's a high energy level behind those who ask about that. And you're saying they're asking about it in a way of we should be impeaching him or will you? Yeah, when are we going to? Okay. When are we going to impeach the president? That's that's kind of one of the top five questions that get asked. If you started to hear more of a push from your constituents, it wasn't just one or two people asking it, but maybe the calls start to come into your office at a higher frequency. Would you feel more pressure then to talk to leadership and talk to your committee chairman and say maybe it's time to push the timeline on an impeachment at least starting an impeachment investigation? I don't know. I don't, th- I don't, I think that I would stick to my position. Um, you know, at the same time that we are responsive to people, we also have to be principled about this in the sense that I think impeachment is a very, very high bar. The framers intended it that way. It isn't just a legal conclusion, it's a political judgment as well. There has to be somewhat of a consensus in the country behind, you know, basically undoing uh, an electoral result. And so that is really serious stuff. And I think that even people like myself who believe that there was wrongdoing and illegality and misconduct that occurred also believe that you have to build a, a real body of, you know, I guess, support for something like that, that spans more than just one party. So, in other words, you would need to know that Republicans in the Senate would, there would be a chance that they would serve to impeach him. I think that if you did not do that, you know, essentially what you'd do is you would have uh, an outcome in the House that would get reversed in the Senate, and then you would have a president that would proclaim that he was vindicated. And I think that that would probably be a much worse result than making sure that we're in the right position to do the right thing. And I think that the other thing I would just say, Amy, is there are red lines that I think the president needs to be mindful of that I think if they were crossed, I think people would call for impeachment and move for impeachment regardless of what happened, firing special counsel Mueller, although now I I think it looks less likely than it did uh, six months ago or um, doing something else that would be so against the letter and spirit of the law that everybody can see it uh, very plainly, I think that would probably trigger a move in that direction. Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamoorthy. I was curious what history could teach us about this. A lot of the work that goes into impeachment and the threat of impeachment revolves around partisanship, opposition, and power. 
Leah Wright-Rigur is assistant professor of public policy at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. So if you are the party out of power, uh, impeachment becomes one way that you can essentially state your case. And so we've seen that impeachment has been used, particularly in heightened political times, times of war, as a way for the opposite or out-of-power party to remain a check on the in-power party. So we actually see impeachment used far, or the threat of impeachment used far more often than we would actually than we'd admit or that would come up. We see somebody like Bill Clinton. We see the threat of it with Richard Nixon, which was a very real threat. But we also see the threat of impeachment with somebody like George W. Bush. We see it with his father, George H.W. Bush. We see it with Harry Truman. <laughs> you know, we see it uh, with Ronald Reagan. So we see these these calls, particularly from the out of power party, as a way of reining in um, the actions and the behaviors and trying to be trying to hold the in power party accountable. Well, was that the intention of the framers that it would be really an opportunity for the out of power forces within the political process to hold the president accountable? So I think the framers had a lot of different <laughs> intentions <laughs> for impeachment and impeachment proceedings. And I think, in fact, that uh, if we were to bring them, bring them up, it would probably start a pretty large argument <laughs> amongst our, our constitutional, uh, constitutional scholars about the intention. But one thing that I can say is that several of them saw the impeachment proceedings as a way to, quote unquote, check, check obnoxious tendencies mm -hmm. on the part of federal officials. So basically to rein them in. Now, there are all kinds of interpretations of what that actually means. And what we've seen in the ensuing, you know, in the ensuing years and in the decades and the generation since is that very deliberately, the bar for impeachment has been very high. Now, impeachment on state and local, right, of other officials, that's something completely different. And so we see impeachment happening and, and threats of impeachment happening in very different ways. But as for the executive office and the presidency, that's something where, again, it's very rare. But when it does come, and when the, even when the accusation comes out of kind of partisan roots, it is a symptom right, of something much larger. And it's a reflection of, again, this out-of-power party and all these networks really trying to regain ground. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that means through partisan current, trying to curry partisan favor with the base or with um, independence, or it may mean actually a check on power. And so I think one of the things that we can point to is, you know, these accusations um, around times of war. Right? So this, there's a real fear of the executive office abusing its power when it comes to war or when it comes to wartime efforts. The other thing that we see is that, you know, this dates back long time, right, beyond the kind of modern period, as we often see uh, uh, calls for impeachment around the firing of various individuals, right? So have you abused your executive power by firing people from office, which makes the debate even more interesting about, you know, what is accountability and what is the, what is the extent of executive power? As we consider this very high bar for what, what requires uh, impeachment, it's interesting to think about, you know, abuse of power within that spectrum as well and what constitutes mm. abuse of power. In your mind, how close are we to starting this process with this president? Well, we already know that there have been several people in Congress who have called for the impeachment mm -hmm. of Donald Trump. Now, with that said, 
if we go back and we look and we look at something like George W. Bush, who was not impeached, but who had a, you know, there were several calls, serious calls for resolution around impeachment. Um, you know, or if we look at somebody like Bill Clinton, who was impeached, we actually see that the standard by which those individuals were, you know, discussed, were talked about, and in the Clinton's case, were actually, you know, had articles of impeachment brought against them, that actually that standard has been met. Leah wright Rigor, thank you so much for coming and joining me. Oh, thank you for... For so many Black people, The Wiz feels like home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to The Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Having me. Earlier in the show, I talked with Congressman Raja Krishnamoorthy, a Democrat from Illinois, who told me he does not believe that now is the right time to start impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump. He wants to wait until after the Mueller investigation is over. We have active investigations ongoing. We don't have the answers to all our questions. And so let's finish the investigation and then go from there. Yoni Applebaum disagrees with that assessment. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic and author of their March cover story, Impeach. It's in all caps, by the way. He says legislators saying, wait, I've got it wrong. They're wrong in in three specific and different ways. One is they're looking at this uh, in the Mueller report as if it will deliver them. Robert Mueller's charge is actually fairly narrow. He's supposed to look at, at Russian collusion. Michael Cohen testified this week that the president had directed him in the commission of, of campaign finance felonies to cover up an alleged affair with a porn star. That's not going to be in the Mueller report. There's a whole lot of other things out there that wouldn't be either, uh, from potential violations of the emoluments clauses through to President Trump's acts in office. If Congress is going to consider whether or not the president is fit to serve, it's, it's got to look at the whole picture. The second way they're wrong is that these hearings are fragmentary. We're already seeing that where where Cohen testifies before oversight one day and then behind closed doors before the the House Intelligence Committee the next day. It's a kaleidoscopic picture. Uh, If you want to assess Donald Trump, you've got to look at him in totality because no individual act is going to be dispositive. And then the third way they're wrong is it's the wrong way to approach their charge as members of Congress. They are making a political bet about what the most expedient way to deal with the situation is. I strongly believe that members of Congress have a constitutional duty. If they believe the things they've been saying on cable news panels and talk radio, if if they believe their own descriptions of this president, then they have a duty to act with that in mind and damn the consequences. The other argument that those who are against impeachment proceedings, and I hear this from Democrats as well as Republicans, but that it will fail to produce a conviction in the Senate. There simply are not 67 votes in the Senate to convict this president. So why bother? Well, that's a, it's an interesting idea, right? It's You don't often hear prosecutors say, well, I have just positive evidence, but I'm not going to charge this guy because I don't know if I've got 12 votes in a jury room. We usually proceed by starting from the evidence and 
thinking our way toward the intended conclusion, not by counting those heads. The, the other problem with it, and it's a, a fairly profound problem, is that the process itself is generally what has produced that kind of consensus in the Senate. And so if you're waiting for 67 senators to say that they're ready to vote to remove the president from office, before you really start in earnest the process of gathering the evidence, detailing it, having public hearings and trying to move public opinion, you'll be waiting and forever. That will never happen on its own. One of the other arguments made against impeachment writ large is it overturns the vote of the people. What is your take on how that works? So it's an it's an interesting argument, but it's not the constitution that we have when the president, who is elected by the people, tries to do something that the Supreme Court deems unconstitutional, the Supreme Court can step in and stop him. Mm-hmm. In lots of ways, our Constitution says, yes, the people voted for this president, but he is still bound by the rules. He is still subservient to the law. Nobody's above that. And the founders thought about this a lot. They understood and wrote very explicitly about their fear that one day a man fundamentally by his character unsuited for this office might rise to occupy the presidency. And so they set up a system for dealing with it. And that system is impeachment. Not to use it, frankly, is the danger to democracy. Given what we saw this week from Republicans, all of whom stayed away from the specific allegations made on the president, but focused instead on Michael Cohen's character, what does that tell you about the likelihood or maybe the not likelihood of an impeachment inquiry that would be truly bipartisan? And that would be focused on the issues instead of on sort of supporting the partisan argument of each side. You know, I look back to the Watergate process to answer this. The early days of those hearings sounded a lot like the hearing that that we saw this week with total partisan polarization. Many of the folks who would eventually turn on the president early in that process were among his staunchest defenders. Howard Baker mm-hmm. uh, conferred with the president and, and privately met with him and promised to defend him in Congress. That same Howard Baker w- would later become famous for asking over and over again, what did the president know and, and when did he know it? And in oral histories and other interviews that these congressmen later gave about why they changed their minds, most of them said they didn't want to. It had started off as, as an almost purely partisan process. But over time, when day after day they were confronted with the weight of the evidence, when day after day they heard directly about things that had been alleged but they had perhaps not wanted to heed, or new documents had been surfaced that gave specificity to, to charges that had simply been bandied about in the media to that point, they were left with this very stark decision. And the decision was not whether or not they would support Richard Nixon. It was whether or not, by ignoring the things that they now knew to be true, they would be authorizing any future president to act in the same way. And for most of them, that was the breaking point. At the moment where they had to say, I know this to have happened, and if I don't act against it, then a president of the other party, a president I like a lot less, will act in the same way in the future. That was something that that really stuck in in their craw, and and many of them started to bend and and then to break. I want to ask you sort of an existential question I've been thinking about, especially since in my lifetime, this would be, if this were to happen in an impeachment inquiry, the third such thing in my lifetime. I will have seen two presidents elected who did not win the popular vote. And I wonder what it tells us about the stability of the Constitution uh, and its ability to endure in this era. 
Well, I'm, I'm a bit of an optimist. Uh, you know, we went through in the 19th century a civil war, which was a heck of a lot worse than any kind of partisan <laughs> division we, we face right now. After that, they killed the sitting president, then they impeached his successor. Uh, then we had a, a bunch of elections where there was a split between the popular vote and, and the electoral majority in the late 19th century. And, and so the Constitution can be a fairly resilient document, but it, it's not, it doesn't have a, an autocorrect mechanism. Uh, every time that we've been faced with real challenges, what it's taken is folks who are willing to step up and, and to follow the call of duty. That sounds a little trite or a little hackneyed these days, um, but I have great optimism uh, in the long-term constitutional stability of this country because I, I am optimistic that ultimately both public servants and the public will demand that we follow the Constitution and the path that it's laid out, and also because this country has been through a lot and generally, Americans, uh, in the end, have come around to, to trying to fix things. Yoni Alpamam, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Well, we just heard the argument for impeachment. What about the argument against? For that, we turn to Don Calloway from the National Voter Protection Action Fund. I would like to impeach the president, but I do not think that Congress should pursue that route right now. I think that the president has pretty clearly been involved in activity which rises to the level of impeachable offenses. That said, I think that the political risk from a purely political calculus standpoint is great enough that Democrats should not pursue impeachment given that it could likely cost them the House of Representatives and perhaps even their opportunity to take the presidency in 2020. Why do you think it comes with such great risk? I just simply don't see there being anyone new convinced that the president should be impeached. I spend a lot of time with people of a wide variety of political persuasions, and there is a deep-seated belief, even amongst moderate Republicans, that the overwhelming negativity that we have seen from this administration over the last two years is based in a coalition of Democrats, mainstream Republicans, old school Republicans, and a liberally based media, which has conspired to portray the president in a bad light. Therefore, even the most objective facts of impeachable activity have not brought anybody else over to the impeach the president's side. I do think that given that objective evidence of potential criminal misdeeds won't bring anybody in, then you're faced with looking at the risk of what does proceeding with impeachment activity do? Do you turn off anybody else? And I think that the, there is a substantial risk of turning off people who care about bread and butter issues, such as health care, such as affordable child care, such as jobs in communities. And impeachment simply does nothing to dig into the bread and butter issues that House Democrats should be thinking about and should be using their legislative time to pursue over the course of the next two years. Yeah, we absolutely have a real life need and there is a real function and utility for oversight functions. In fact, the president has spent the first two years of his administration with essentially no House oversight. But I don't think that oversight necessarily goes hand in glove with impeachment given the political risk. It seems to me that the balance then that you're talking about is there are the short-term political consequences of going ahead with this, but there's also the long-term consequence with choosing to not do this. And the long-term consequence might be that Democrats chose to take the easier political route 
But in the long run, they failed to defend the Constitution or they put their political interests ahead of the country. Do you yeah. worry about that? That's a great question. And that's ultimately asked alternatively is, is there a moral imperative mm-hmm. right now to impeach this president? Gosh, I wish I, <laughs> I wish I had a neat and clean answer. I do think that we have an opportunity to remove this president in the fall of 2020. So that's one thing. I I will put that on the table. Perhaps that sounds like a a bit of a pivot or a default, right? But I think that every decision that any Congress makes, unfortunately, is based in its politics. And a large portion of the politics is self-preservation of power of the current. I also think, Amy, that it's important to say, hey, what can we do while we have the majority Does the potential good from those things that we can achieve here in the House, does that outweigh the idea of removing this president when, by the way, an election will be here before we know it? We saw that the House passed common sense gun reform, uh, something that would have never happened under the last eight years under uh, Paul Ryan or whoever the previous uh, uh, John Boehner uh, under the Republican majority would have never happened. Uh, they, the Democrats have introduced and will give serious hearings to H.R. 1, sweeping uh, ethics reform, voting rights reform. Uh, House Democrats have a real opportunity to, to restore uh, the Voting Rights Act to its full strength, including preclearance notions of Section 5. So I think you have to look at it holistically and say, what can we do all things considered, while we have the gavels of this chairmanship and while we have a Democratic speaker, and does the good that can be achieved uh, collectively from everything that we can do, does that outweigh the political risk of impeaching this president? I would suggest that it does. You spend a good deal of time around grassroots Democrats. Is your sense that at some point they are going to grow restless as more and more of these hearings go on as evidence may come out from either the Southern District or the Mueller report that they become so restless that they say to their members and to the Democratic leadership, hey, it's time and the leadership will have no choice but to push forward with an impeachment process? That's a very good question. And I think that the one valve, I guess the protecting valve that uh, Democratic House leadership has is the idea that there is an election immediately pending. Uh, it's not like this is at the uh, the very beginning of a four-year term. Um, we are on, um, we are at the beginning of the back nine, if you will, uh, if you think that this president pot- potentially could be limited to one term. So I think that a lot of grassroots activism is going to be looking at Uh, developing a Democratic nominee who embodies a lot of the values that Democratic grassroots activists are looking for. So right now in the circles that I'm in, we're talking about uh, can we trust Kamala Harris? How can we trust Cory Booker? Is Elizabeth Warren potentially the one who is going to come with all of the grassroots activist principles of uh, criminal justice reform plus ethics reform in terms of money and politics plus holding financial institutions to task. And I think that the one protector that Nancy Pelosi has against impeachment is the idea that people's attentions are really starting to be focused this spring on who's going to be the nominee. 
and in developing that nominee into a a standard bearer for a legitimately progressive platform such that we can go into the caucuses next year and come out with a very strong nominee who has the unified support of both mainstream Democrats and the grassroots activist uh, universe. So the election will be here before we know it. I mean, it doesn't seem like it, but this president's already been in office for two years, and I think that a lot of attention is going to be focused on taking him down. And I do think that much to their credit, even the more leftist elements of the Democratic Party seems to understand, at least from the temperature that I get right now, that beating the president in uh, 2020 is is the much more important objective than leveraging some of our capital to impeach. Well, you just heard it from Democratic strategist Don Calloway. And from his perspective, a lot of grassroots activism is centered around finding a Democratic nominee the party can unite behind. That field of candidates is large and only getting larger. Just this week, the first sitting governor, Washington State's Jay Inslee, jumped in. All right, so here's my take on the impeachment issue. The fact that only two presidents have been impeached and neither convicted should tell us all we need to know about how difficult this procedure is and why so many Democrats are proceeding cautiously on the issue. Almost to a person, they say they want to wait for the Mueller report to come out. Yet we also know that this report may not give a clear and definitive answer to the to impeach or not impeach question. Congressman Krishnamoorthy told me he was worried that the attorney general won't release the full Mueller report, which is why some, including my friend NBC's Chuck Todd, raised this important point that maybe the impeachment process has already begun. The Cohen testimony being the first of many hearings to come. It's just that Democrats aren't calling these hearings impeachment proceedings. We wanted to know what you thought about impeachment, and perhaps not surprisingly, you were divided on where this should go to. Not yet, but I really think the country has to do it. This is Holly Freeman in Portland, Oregon. I'd say yes, I think impeachment is warranted. The level of deceit, self-dealing, treason, and consorting with enemies of democracy is just too much. Hello, this is Peter calling from Boynton Beach, Florida. Yeah, I don't think uh, impeachment for the Democrats is a great idea. It'd be way too costly for them, especially with the election being so close, not too far away. So definitely a bad idea. Thank you. Hi, this is Sam from Tampa. Yes, I think the Democrats should move forward with impeaching Trump. Call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.